Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. In November 2019, the Progressive Magazine hosted an event entitled Conversations on a Progressive Future with Noam Chomsky and David Barsamian at Pima Community College's Proscenium Theater in Tucson. Today, we continue with part five of a five-part series. Considered the founder of modern linguistics, Noam Chomsky joined the UA faculty in fall 2017, where he is a laureate professor in the Department of Linguistics in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. He is also the Agnes Noam's Hari Chair in the Agnes Noam's Howry Program in Environment and Social Justice. Dr. Noam Chomsky, Professor Emeritus at MIT, has introduced the world to ideas that have excited, incited, and challenged millions. His groundbreaking work in linguistics and his fearless engagements in politics, culture, history, and philosophy have profoundly impacted generations of students, scholars, community activists, and members of the public across and within political and ideological divides. Investigative journalist David Barsamian hosts the nationally syndicated show Alternative Radio and has co-authored books with Noam Chomsky, Akbal Ahmad, Howard Zinn, Tariq Ali, Richard Wolfe, Arundhati Roy, and Edward Said. His latest books are with Noam Chomsky, Global Discontents, Rising Threats to Democracy, and Edward Said, Culture and Resistance. He lectures on world affairs, imperialism, capitalism, propaganda, the media, and global rebellions. Norman Stockwell is publisher of The Progressive. Since 1909, The Progressive has amplified voices of dissent and those underrepresented in the mainstream with a goal of championing grassroots progressive politics. The event was a benefit for The Progressive magazine. In part five of this five-part series, Noam Chomsky and David Barsamian begin by discussing barriers and potential solutions in the Middle East. Well, is there a way to deal with the threat of, alleged threat, of Iranian nuclear weapons? That is a very simple way to end that threat, which is never discussed. How? Uh, introduce a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East with uh, strict verification and we have very good reason to believe that verification works. Uh, the Even U.S. intelligence agrees that uh, verification of Iran, Iran activities under the joint agreement was perfect. They couldn't find any uh, tight, tight verification, no violations. So introduce a nuclear weapons-free zone with verification. That would end any possible concern about Iranian nuclear weapons. Uh, are there barriers to that? I mean, is Iran a barrier? Not at all. Iran's been vociferously calling for it for many years. Uh, what about the Arab states? They're the ones who initiated the proposal uh, 20 years ago, continually bring it up. They want a nuclear weapons-free zone. Uh, what about Europe? Well, they support it. Uh, what about the non-aligned countries, most of the world? They strongly support it. There's one barrier. It's called the United States. Uh, this issue comes up every five years at the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review meetings. 
the last time was 2015 under Obama, Obama vetoed it. Everybody knows exactly why, but you can't talk about it because it would mean that the US would have to acknowledge the existence of Israeli military weapons, nuclear weapons. And furthermore, there would be inspection of Israel's huge nuclear arsenal. That not only can't be done, but it can't even be talked about, right? Try to find a word about it. I mean, I've written about it forever, a couple other people, but just people way at the margins. And this has to do with the one of the major issues in world affairs, uh, the possibility of a war uh, with Iran. But it cannot be discussed. That goes back to your point about uh, PEP. It's much broader. And the threats, oh, there's a tremendous amount at stake. It's not just Israel and Palestine. It's uh, a, a war in the Middle East with Iran would have horrifying consequences. It wouldn't reach the United States. We're too far away. But uh, if, if uh, there's an attack on Iran, almost certain that they would immediately attack uh, the world's major oil resources, which happen to be in northeast Saudi Arabia, uh, in a Shiite area right near Iran. The Shiite population is already very harshly repressed. It's also the main center for Saudi uh, desalination uh, operations, which they depend on. Uh, Iran would certainly attack that right away, and then it would blow up, and who knows where it would go. That would be a horrible affair. Why is that a danger? Because we're not allowed to admit that Israel has nuclear weapons. Just think about that for a minute. What kind of a country are we where this can be happening? Just to add something else, the U.S. and Britain have a unique responsibility to move for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the region because of something else that's never discussed. Uh, when the U.S. and Britain uh, decided to invade Iraq, uh, they had to concoct some sort of fake legal argument to support it. That's what lawyers are for. Uh, one of the things they did was... Uh, uh, refer to a UN Security Council resolution, uh, forgot which one, 184, I think, which uh, in 1991, which called on Saddam to terminate his nuclear weapons production, which in fact he had done. We know that story. But if you read that resolution, get down to one of the lower article 14 of the resolution, it commits the signers of the resolution, the United States and Britain, to work to establish a nuclear weapons-free zone in the region. We are uniquely uh, res responsible, committed, have, have a responsibility to do this. None of this can be discussed, and a tremendous amount is at stake, a possible devastating war. But you can't talk about it. Uh, Will you be shot if you can talk about it? No, it's not a dictatorship. We're all free to talk about it. I've been talking about it for years. I'm still standing here, sitting here. But uh, so it's a very free country, but we don't use our freedom. And uh, it's, it's our fault. We can. And a lot is at stake. There's plenty of issues like this around the world. And like I say, there, 
They're not quantum physics. They're not hard to figure out. It just takes a little, little thought. You are listening to Conversations on a Progressive Future with Professor Noam Chomsky and investigative journalist David Barsamian on 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Well, what would constitute uh, justice for the Palestinians in your view? What do they want? The Palestinians? Yes. Well, you know, for a long time what they wanted, majority opinion, was in favor of a Palestinian state alongside Israel. Actually, that... Uh, the two-state solution. Two-state solution. Now, that's, uh, again, not talked about here, but if you go back uh, to the early 70s, uh, that became a major issue on the international agenda. So in 1976, uh, a resolution was introduced in the UN Security Council which was supported by the major Arab states, uh, Egypt, uh, Syria, Jordan, right on the border of Israel. It was supported by them. It called for a two-state settlement on the internationally recognized border with guarantees for the right of each state to exist, I'm quoting it, to exist in peace and security within secure and recognized borders. Uh, Israel was infuriated. They refused to attend the session. Uh, the United States vetoed it, okay? Continued to veto similar resolutions in later years. Uh, that's, you know, you could argue that the border shouldn't be right on the border. It's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's a military demarcation line, so maybe you straighten it out or something. But uh, that's, that was a possible solution, and that was majority of Palestinian opinion for a long time. By now, many Palestinians, probably most, have given up hope on that. They say it's just impossible. The settlement has reached such a level that it can't be done. I, personally, I don't agree with that. I think it's still in the ballpark if American policy shifts. But uh, that leaves them without an option. Uh, Many Palestinians, including Palestinian intellectuals, talk about uh, what they call a one-state solution. There should be one state from the Jordan to the Mediterranean with equal rights for everyone. That's simply not an option. Uh, I mean, you can talk because... about it. For a very simple reason. First of all, it has zero international support. It's not going to be supported by... African states, for example. States are very jealous of their sovereignty. And notice that a one-state solution means Israel goes out of existence. As a Jewish state. As, as, as it is now constituted. It's not going to be Israel anymore. It's going to be a majority Palestinian state, whatever you call it. There's no support for that anywhere. Furthermore, if there were any support, Israel would use every weapon at its command, including its huge nuclear arsenals, to prevent it. It's kind of academic because there's no, no support for it. But if anything developed, it would never develop. So putting your hope in that is totally meaningless. In fact, the choices today, and for several years, have been between a two-state settlement and uh, 
and some sort of greater Israel with Palestinians essentially, uh, you know, like tossed tossed away. Uh, you can, I mean, you could argue, and it has been argued, that there could be some kind of one-state settlement which maintains uh, uh, Jewish sovereignty but allows some kind of rule for Palestinians, a kind of mildly apartheid state. Not pretty, but maybe that could be. What's your position on boycott, divestment, and sanctions? Are you in favor or against? Well, first of all, it's, it's boycott and, and divestment. There's no sanctions. That's just a slogan. BDS. BDS is a slogan, mm. but the reality is BD. So let's be honest about it. Uh, sanctions only come from the United States, and they're not coming. Okay. So what about boycott and divestment? I think those are good tactics, but you have to think when you carry out tactics. You have to think about how you, you can't just say, I have a catechism and I'm going to apply it. You have to say, how am I going to apply it? Well, if you take a look at the, uh, actually the boycott and divestment, uh, initiatives began in 1997 uh, from uh, Uri Avneri's uh, leading uh, Israeli uh, activist, left activist. Uri Avneri and his uh, group, Gush Shalom, the peace group, uh, uh, organized a boycott divestment campaign uh, aimed at Israel's occupation of the occupied territories. That made very good sense. Uh, that's a clear issue, uh, plenty of support for it, no way of opposing it, and it strikes right at the heart of the major issues. And there have been successes in that. Like, for example, the Presbyterian Church, big organization, uh, not only uh, in, uh, carry, has a boycott divestment uh, program against the settlements, but also against U.S. multinationals, which are involved in any way in the settlements. Now, that's exactly the right program. That kind of thing has been successful. Now, most of that has been done outside the BDS movement. They have a catechism, three points. Uh, one point is uh, the occupation. Second point is all Palestinian refugees have to return, to, have to have the right of return to Israel. Third, we have to boycott Israel until it provides equal rights for Palestinians. Well, you can argue about whether those latter two goals are right or wrong, but one thing is very clear about them. They're not going to be realized, and they are going to engender a reaction which is stronger than the protest. Uh, they're going to engender cries of anti-Semitism, uh, academic freedom, uh, diverting attention away from the Palestinians to some extraneous issue, uh, legislation to ban it because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's anti-Semitic, uh, why Israel, not a dozen other countries, and so on. Uh, it's going to be condemned as utterly hypocritical. Uh, you ban, uh, if you boycott Tel Aviv University, why not boycott Harvard? U.S. has a far worse record than Israel does. And aside from being unprincipled, the goals are unrealizable, and their main effect 
is to divert attention away from the plight of Palestinians to something else. Uh, freedom of speech, uh, academic freedom, uh, uh, oppressive legislations, everything but the flight of Palestinians. That's a very pointless choice of tactics. The right tactics, I think, are apparent. They ought to be focused on the occupation and on US government policy, kinds of things I mentioned, which can be changed. Uh, even, a, even a threat of cutback of US aid, even a credible threat would have an enormous effect. And I think that uh, those are pretty feasible goals. There are plenty of Americans across the board who, if they knew about it, wouldn't see any reason to uh, provide military aid to a, uh, that happens to be in violation of US law. Okay? A lot of people would be opposed to that. Uh, it's also a way to bring up the major issues. Uh, on the other hand, concentrating on, say, the right of return, first of all, it's never going to happen. Everybody knows it's never going to happen. And it diverts attention away from the real issues. Okay? Uh, same with uh, you know, cultural boycotts. Maybe you can give an argument for them. But their effect in the real world is to divert attention away from the plight of Palestinians. That's the last thing you want in a solidarity movement. So I think there's a, while the BDS movement has great opportunities, I don't think it's realizing them because of the rigid structure of the doctrine that it accepts. And you just can't deal with the world that way. You can't have rigid doctrines that you try to apply whatever the human consequences. You're never going to get anywhere that way uh, in personal life or anything else. But you do see cracks in what you described as a mon monolithic support for Israel. So, you, do, you do see some cracks. Oh, plenty. Take a look at uh, public opinion among liberal Democrats or among younger people. As you mentioned, yeah. It's uh, very striking. Well, Bernie and Sanders. And we see it in our own experience. Hmm. You, you don't have the experience you used to when you give a talk on this issue. You are listening to Conversations on a Progressive Future with Professor Noam Chomsky and investigative journalist David Barsamian on 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. On Tuesday, August 20th at 8, at 8 a.m., the FBI came to my door, agents Carlos Medina and Brian Palmer. They wanted to know about my trip to Iran and whether I knew certain people, and they wanted me to share my experiences in Iran. We're interested in your story, they said, because the Iranian government targets people just like you to manipulate. I said very little, and uh, you know, I told them to just leave, um, and they did leave after about 10 minutes, but it was just enough to scare my wife Kadriye, who's from Turkey and has some experience with uh, state authorities knocking on doors or breaking doors down. Uh, and initially she thought they were Jehovah Witnesses. Because <laughs> they look like that. They look like that stereotype. So as someone who has spent a lifetime uh, in dissent and confronting uh, state power and its depredations, I know you've had some experiences with what um, John Trudell called the Federal Bureau of Intimidation. Yeah, I've had experiences. But uh, some of them are kind of funny. So for example, uh, 
take the Pentagon Papers. Uh, I was I was a friend of Dan Ellsberg's. I was I had advanced copies of the Pentagon Papers, and uh, I was one of the people helping to distribute them while he was underground, hadn't identified himself. I was getting phone calls from newspapers in the United States and Europe and elsewhere asking if they could get a piece of the Pentagon Papers. They didn't have any trouble finding me. The FBI never found me, literally. They did come to my door, like at, to you, but after Down surfaced and identified himself and wouldn't talk to them, but uh, the incompetence of the intelligence agencies is pretty astonishing. I mean, I can, if we had time, unfortunately we don't, I've got to leave, but there's amazing stories about this. One of the reasons is they're always looking for people like themselves, you know. They, uh, for example, during the, some of the trials of the resistance, the FBI was never able to find out what was being done because they were always looking for where are the orders coming from? Are they coming from North Korea, you know, Hungary? Couldn't be that Americans are standing up and saying, in town hall, New York, and saying, I hereby conspire to, uh, we hereby conspire to undermine the selective service system. We'll forget about that. That's got to be a, that's enough to put them all in jail. But we're not going to look at that because that's obviously a cover for something. So let's find out what's really going on. That's what was going on, nothing else. <laughs> It's one of the ways to fox intelligence services. <laughs> well, I want to thank you all for coming this evening, the Progressive Magazine, um, celebrating 110 years of uh, fabulous work. And finally, I want to ask um, Professor Noam Chomsky uh, this question. Uh, you're turning 91 on December 7th. So they claim. So they claim. As you move forward. What, uh, what do you have up your sleeve? <laughs> Not going to tell you. <laughs> At 97, maybe I'll tell you. At 97, we'll be back, hopefully. Thanks very much, Noam, and thank you all for coming. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you, David Barsamian. Thank you, Professor Noam Chomsky. A treasure and uh, right here with you in Tucson, Arizona. Thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight. Thanks to the Pima Community College Center for the Arts for opening their doors to this event. And also, I encourage you, please subscribe to the Progressive Magazine. Uh, we've been going for 110 years. We'd like to go for 110 more. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to Conversations on a Progressive Future with Professor Noam Chomsky and investigative journalist David Barsamian on 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. The event was a benefit for the Progressive Magazine. This has been part five of a five-part series. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org. 
There you can also subscribe to the podcast and follow our social media links. Thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Shager.